Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast, where we promote, educate, inspire, and entertain creators of all things related to fantasy and science fiction. Hi, this is Carson Lacey, and I have with me Frank Morin. Frank is the author of um, the Face Taker uh, series and the Petrolist series. Frank, thank you so much for getting on with me. Go ahead and tell us about yourself and about your two book series. Sure. Uh, happy to be uh, happy to be here with you, and I'm uh, always happy to talk about books, and my books in particular. <laughs> um, I write, yeah, like you said, I have a couple of series. The Face Takers are fantasy thrillers, so they're set in the near future. It's uh, a big, fast-paced fantasy uh, thrill ride, so think like... Uh, a Mission Impossible kind of world-spanning adventure that goes all over the place uh, with really cool magic and uh, goes back into history with magic. So uh, a lot of history and magic and monsters and uh, excitement all wrapped into one. So it's, uh, it's a really fun, exciting read if you want something that just kind of goes from zero to 60 and keeps accelerating. And then uh, you have the Petrolist series. What's that series about? Right. And then the Petrolist are my uh, my epic young adult fantasy. So I tell people those are a uh, big epic adventure, uh, really cool magic based on rocks, lots of humor. Uh, it's kind of big classic epic fantasy set in a fantasy world. Uh, there's seven main titles in that series and three prequels. And uh, it's just kind of a big epic adventure you can dive into and more humor and a little more lighthearted than some stuff you might find out there. And uh, a lot of people are responding well to it. That's fantastic. And the two series are totally different. Um, was that hard to transition or was like the Petrolist kind of like what you wanted to write and the face takers were like, how'd you come up with the, the, the stories for both of them? Oh, those are good questions. And it's funny because I actually, when I first started releasing books, uh, I tried to alternate one from each series uh, which was a terrible idea because uh, <laughs> then I would get distracted, you know, and I'd lose kind of the momentum on each series as I jumped over to the next book and ended up not working that great. Um, but yeah, they're totally different. Uh, and I love them both. Uh, very different kind of styles and level of action and uh, levels of humor. Um, but they're both big epic adventures with big cast of characters and uh, a lot of exciting things happening. But, uh, you know, the face taker started as a dream, actually. Uh, I had this crazy dream where uh, I could remove people's souls by pulling their face off, basically. And then they could put those faces on different bodies. And it was a really freaky dream. So I woke up and I was like, you know, I got to write something based on that. And hence the face takers. Um, some really cool magic that can draw from the power of human souls, including some people who are the face takers. Um, and that was a work that uh, gave me a chance to travel all around the world, actually, uh, and do research into different cultures as we uh, researched all the places they would go in this crazy ride. And then uh, tons of research in the history. I love history. And because uh, they delve deeper and deeper into the past and uh, Got to wrap all that up into the story. Um, the Petrolist was a fun story. I started with my kids, actually. Uh, a bunch of years ago, we lived in Vermont, and we had to drive everywhere for 30 or 40 minutes to get anywhere. So we would tell a lot of stories. And my kids were pretty young. My oldest were like 8 and 10. So we get in the car, and they'd be like, okay, Dad, we got 40 minutes. Uh, a wizard, a dwarf, and an elf. Go. And so we come up with a story, you know, and, and it was great for just, you know, pure storytelling because they give you instant feedback. They'd either be laughing and having a great time or they'd be like, Dad, that was terrible. Uh, <laughs> and so eventually I was like, guys, let's come up with a cool idea for magic and then we'll create stories based on that. So I sent them away and they came back and said, let's do rocks, you know, not jewels or diamonds or things like that, but just plain rocks. So cool, let's do rocks. So I said, go tell me about rocks. So they went away and they did like this huge term paper on rocks. And they came back, I'd be like pulled off the internet and all kinds of different types of rocks and everything. I was like, okay, we're doing rocks. So for like a year or two, we started creating all these crazy adventures of someone we called George the Petrolist. And, uh, you know, now the main character is Connor and, you know, the story's changed a lot, but some of those initial just kind of free brainstorming we did some of those ideas are still in there 
and uh, so the kids are have been a huge part in just kind of brainstorming each book and giving me feedback and you know it's been fun doing that with them. That's fantastic, and you get to share with your kids this adventure that you're on. Yeah, it's been great. You know, you're not the first person I have talked to where they've said like a book idea came to them from a dream. I dream a lot, and I, I know lots of other people do as well. Um, but to be able to have that dream stick with you is very rare. Did you write that down right off the bat, or did you, you know, just remember it? Did it just I did. And, you know, it's funny, like you said, a lot of times, like these days, I don't tend to remember my dreams very much. But, you know, there was a period of time where maybe I was sleeping differently. I don't know. But there was a period of time I used to remember my dreams a lot. And I had some really epic dreams. And uh, several of them, I was like, this would make a great story. Um, But that was the one that I wrote down because it was so kind of different and freaky. And it's like, this could have easily been a horror story. But Instead, I turned it into a uh, like an action fantasy thriller, um, which you know kind of fits what I like to do better. Um, but really cool, and uh, it just kind of from that initial dream developed it out from there. And there's a character in the series named Gregorios who's kind of loosely based on the guy in the dream. He's not the main character because he's been around a long, so he's more a mentor type character. But really, really interesting guy. I also liked. You know, when you're in, was it Virginia that you were in or Vermont? Yeah, we're in Vermont. Vermont. Yeah. Okay, Vermont. So I, I really like that when you said that you were, you know, you had to drive 30 to 40 minutes and then your kids would just give you ideas and, and go. That's a great exercise for people who want to become an author to just write down three random things and, and try to create a story from it. Absolutely. You know, it's kind of unparalleled just creative practice because you have to just throw something together and uh, it really helps you work on just kind of that flow of ideas that you need to get into. And it's great if you have kids or if you just have friends that don't, you know, like to do storytelling with you and stuff, because you get that instant feedback. You know, if you get a cool idea, they're like, oh, that's awesome. Or they're laughing or whatever. Um, or they're like, whoa. And, and that's cool. You can you can roll with that. You get a lot of energy, you know, just from that. And if you have a bad idea, they kind of look at you like, what? And it's like, okay, we're going to change it and keep rolling. And uh, you can kind of edit and change on the fly. Not only that, but it gives you a sense. See, like storytelling in its pure form is verbal. Uh, yeah. It wasn't until, you know, years later that books or, or things written down, you know, that written language was developed. So when you're doing that, you know, it gets a sense of flow in your head and you're telling a story and you can get get a sense, like you said, immediately, you know, when people kind of lose interest and when people are interest is peaked once entertaining so you know telling stories out loud um can really help develop your your pacing and the way you tell stories on paper right and it's an interesting process you know these days when i'm writing like the first draft of a new book i actually take my voice recorder and a microphone and i go hike for five or ten miles you know and uh you know daily and i just dictate chapters and then I have software that'll transcribe them for me. But I get that same kind of storytelling, verbal uh, approach to a new story that I think puts a, uh, a different level of, it's just, a, it's just a really cool way to tell a story. Um, but I mean, it takes practice. The first time I tried to dictate, it was a, a horrible failure, you know, trying to, you know, rather than just, flowing out and storytelling, actually trying to structure sentences and paragraphs and, you know, think about it the way I would type it, but verbally, you know, it took some training, but, uh, but now I find, you know, you can really get in the zone while you're just out doing something mundane. For me, it's hiking. I mean, you could do it doing dishes or doing something else that doesn't really take any, you know, real thought (laughs) or focus. Um, and you can use it as a creative moment. For me, it's worked really well. That's amazing. Um, you're not the first person to do that. I know Kevin J. Anderson is a big proponent of dictating um, his story. Um, and that is a way for, for people to sure. be able to do, you know, two tasks at once. If they can't find time to to write, but they're driving 30 minutes to work every day, that's a, a time that they can multitask and be able to still sure. write a story. Uh, would you mind sharing, like, what you use? Um you know, the technology you use in order to do that? 
Oh, sure. Yeah. And Kevin J. Anderson is, uh, he's a good friend of mine and he was one of the inspirations that got me to actually start doing it. And the first couple of attempts I had, like I said, were horrible and I immediately deleted them, but you know, you got to get past that. And, uh, I use, uh, just a voice recorder, uh, that uh, I think I have one right here. I just used a Sony voice recorder and uh, I've got a, uh, a, head, a headset microphone uh, that I have to look up exactly what it was, but I plug that into the recorder because it gives me better audio quality. And then when I get home, I you know download the files into my computer and I use a piece of software called Dragon that uh, transcribes it for me. And you know, it's not a hundred percent. So I have to go back through and do an initial edit which uh, just kind of fixing typos and, and kind of correcting things. But uh, that allows me to do my, like my first pass edit immediately. So I end up with a pretty solid draft after that. Um, the downside, I guess the challenge of doing it that way is Dragon will not add, you know, punctuation and formatting and stuff for you. So you have to dictate that. Um, or like Kevin J. Anderson and some people, you know, they'll send the files to a transcriptionist uh, who will type it in for you instead of using the software. Um, and that's, you know, that's a good option to use too. It's just, you know, more upfront cost. Uh, but I trained myself to do the dictation, which is pretty funny because, you know, I'll be dictating and then I need to make a phone call and I have to catch myself, you know, to not put in the punctuation. It's like, Hello, comma, honey, period. How are you doing? Question mark. And she's like, what? <laughs> I'm sure you get <laughs> like, used to that. I've been dictating. Sorry. Um, but yeah, many times I've had to catch myself and kind of do that mental shift to uh, to go back to normal speak. But, uh, you know, after kind of comes some clumsy initial attempts as I train myself, it's just like when you type, you know, you have to add the punctuation and carriage returns and everything. And you don't think about it. And now when I'm dictating, I don't have to think about it. It just kind of flows out and doesn't interrupt. But, you know, it takes practice. Is that how you primarily uh, get your first draft down is dictation? Yeah, my last several books have been uh, first draft dictated. And uh, uh, so I've done enough. Some of my books are pretty big. And uh, so I've done enough now that I'm very comfortable with the process. And uh, I really enjoy it. You know, when I'm stuck at home editing, um, you know, I have to be at my computer. So I actually have a kind of this seated workstation and right next to me, I have a, uh, a desk uh, that I can raise up so I can be standing sometimes. And I'm tempted to get myself a, uh, like a treadmill. So that when I'm at home editing, I can still be walking or moving, you know, get some exercise in and, uh, you know, not just be sitting here like a slug for hours. That's amazing that, you know, you've transitioned to, to dictation, uh, you know, and you, can like I said, you can uh, multitask, go on your your hikes and whatnot, and not be a slug like you said. Why did you choose to go the indie route? Well, that's a great question. You know, when I first started writing, I mean, I actually started writing when my youngest son was very young, and he's almost eighteen now. So I wrote for quite a few years without really uh, doing anything with it. I spent four years on my first novel, which was this huge epic fantasy monstrosity. It was like three hundred thousand words long. Um, you know, that was, you know, 18 years ago and the indie route wasn't really available. So, you know, I started following the traditional route, you know, I sent out dozens of query letters and acquired my piles of rejection slips and everything. And, you know, eventually I took a class from, uh, David Farland, uh, who's an excellent, uh, trainer or teacher of other writers. He passed away this year, unfortunately, but a lot of his uh, training books are still out there and they're amazing. You know, that was one of those milestones that helped me grow as a writer. So I came back and threw away that book I had been working on for four years and I spent another two years rewriting it uh, as a 200,000 word epic monstrosity. <laughs> Actually, it's a pretty good book. I have not released that yet. The first two books in that series are done. Um, but I actually went to a uh, world fantasy con uh, about 10 or 12 years ago. And I found an agent who, uh, you know, wanted to take that book on and uh, ended up wasting quite a few years, unfortunately. And I won't get into any details there, but it wasn't good. And uh, in the meantime, while that book was kind of caught up in that whole process, um, 
I was like, well, I need to write some more stuff. So I started in on Set in Stone, which was book one of my epic young adult uh, fantasy series I developed with my kids. Yeah, there's, you have the original cover. And uh, we recently redid the cover like this. They're both beautiful. I love that first cover. Uh, you know, it's symbolic and it's beautiful. But uh, I learned that people were looking at that and assuming it was a, a uh, romance book because oh. there was some dude without a shirt on. I was like, well, there's no woman, you know, hanging on his shoulder and whatever. Um, so clearly some people were uh, seeing it for something it wasn't. And uh, so we changed the cover. And now we have the awesome monster on there that uh, is called a Pedra, a lot like a dragon, but uh, super fun. And uh, so I started working on that. And then when the, the whole agent relationship kind of fell through, by that time, becoming an indie was becoming a, uh, a possible track. And I have a lot of friends who are indie authors and they were starting to do well. And I had started writing the face ticker books and everything. So I was like, fine, we're going to go with it. So in 2015, I uh, started releasing books. I put out Set in Stone and... Uh, I think I've had three books out that year, three or four, Set in Stone and the two sequels to that, and then at least one of the books from the Face Taker series and, you know, kept chugging away. So we talked about the covers and, and I always ask about, you know, finding an artist and whatnot, but um, I'm going to skip to the marketing side of it. Like I'll hold up this cover again. Um, if people are listening, um, they they won't be able to see this. Hopefully when this goes up on YouTube, they will. Um so you you redid the cover. How imp how hard was it one to find a cover artist that you, that you wanted uh, that you know kind of shared your vision, and two, um, how long did it take you to figure out that this was given the wrong message and and to change it? Yeah, it uh, that's a good question. You know, I found the the cover artist actually fairly easily because, like I said, I I have a lot of friends who are authors and I'm in several several groups with them. And I saw one guy who was posting covers of his books. And I was like, those are gorgeous. Who's your artist? And uh, reached out to him. The guy's name is Brad Fraunfelter. He's a professional, you know, full-time artist. Uh, and he's amazing. And in these covers, like I can show you this new one here, he sculpted this. Like he sculpts all of these things on my covers out of clay. And then he photographs them. And then he digitally doctors them and stuff oh wow he does beautiful work i've been you know super it's been just an amazing experience to kind of throw out ideas at him and and have him say oh did you mean this and give me you know a a rough sketch of something that's gorgeous and amazing and it's like yeah that's totally what i meant <laughs> <laughs> and then you know he produces these incredible covers uh for the face takers i started working with a different guy a local fellow um and some of those covers turned out really good but then uh, book in that series the local artist uh, was no longer available and uh so i needed a new artist and he couldn't replicate the exact uh you know style and everything so we redid all the covers for the face takers and uh i like how they turned out they turned out great um but yeah with set in stone we uh it actually took a few years to uh to realize because a lot of people you know they love that first cover and uh even though i had some comments from pe some people like whoa that guy's gorgeous or whatever i didn't really think enough about it until i had you know several kind of data points uh and you know some reviews that were like there wasn't enough romance and you know in the book there's some but i mean it's not a romance book so if you're looking for a romance book, so eventually I had to finally realize, oh, okay, um, we need to change that. But, uh, you know, working with Brad again, I threw out the idea of using the, the that monster, the Pedra, and uh, he was like, oh, I can totally do that. And he nailed it. That's amazing. He does amazing work, that's for sure. Um, how hard was it for you to find a, an editor? Oh, it, you know, it can be tricky. And again, uh, networking with other authors is vitally important. The editor I've used for all of my books, I was lucky I found a brilliant editor right off the bat. Uh, his name is Joshua Esso, and uh, he's edited some big name authors. He's an independent, uh, you know, self-employed editor. And he not only will do, you know, the, uh, the line editing stuff, but he'll do 
um, more of a developmental edit for you as well. I mean, he'll, all of those little things in the story that you hope nobody will ever notice, you know, he'll put his finger on everyone. He's like, what about this? What did you mean here? What's up? What's going on over here? And, it's like, and he's brilliant. And, you know, I know some, some authors who kind of buy into the idea of, you know, I just need to release fast. I need to have something out every month or every other month. And, you know, some of them tell me, um, you know, readers don't really care how well something's edited. They don't care if there's, you know, grammatical issues with a book. They just want a book all the time. And, you know, there's certain uh, segments of the reading population that that's true because some of those authors I know are making way more than I am. Um, and they're not even editing. They're significantly better writers than I am. I'm not sure. But I'm a firm believer in getting a good editor and taking the time to edit a book. You know, part of that is I write very complex plots. You know, my, my character arcs, you know, sometimes cover several books and the plots are very complicated. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of moving parts that have to mesh in together. And it's very difficult to get a complex story like that, an epic story like that, right on the first draft. Right. So for me, you know, I write, I write it down in the as we go through percolates in my mind, you know, different layers and levels of, of conflict and characters in the world and everything start kind of becoming clear. So since I take the time to go through and do, uh, you know, a major edit and then kind of another polishing pass at minimum, you know, I had the time to put those things in and uh, my stories are significantly better as a result than they would have been otherwise. And, uh, you know, the people who read them really like them. Are you an outliner or you do, uh, as you're walking, you just are able to, to spout out your, your masterpiece? Yeah, it's a great course. New writers as a pantser, you know, just kind of making things up and kind of writing into the fog to see where the, where the road leads. And that's exciting, but it leads to a lot of rewriting. Um, and like, I think the majority of experienced writers, you know, I tend more now to, uh, to outlining or at least at a high level, I've tried it at different levels. Like a couple of my books, I tried outlining to the nth degree. And I find that didn't actually work as well. I like to outline, you know, the basic structure of the book and know what my what my scenes are and what the goals of each of those scenes are. But then when I go to dictate them, um, I just kind of have that in my mind and then, and, uh, and say, okay, this is the scene. These are the people. These are the goals. And then, because there's some stuff you don't see till you get in the zone and uh, you're right in there and the book kind of comes alive all around you. And it's like, whoa, this is cool. Um, in those moments, you know, I've learned to trust. So, you know, I'll go with it. And if I end up having a brilliant idea that totally goes off the cliff, you know, there's a left hand turn, you know, then I can pause and look back and say, okay, I just broke the plan. Um, you know, is this change so brilliant that I need to break the plan and, and revise the whole plan? Or was that just a lemming jumping off a cliff? You know, let's ax that and do it again and, you know, stay within the broad parameters of what we're, we're doing. And uh, for me, that works pretty well. So when you go out on your, your walks to dictate or, you know, wherever you do it, do you have your outline with you or your notes on your phone or something that you can kind of, you know, refresh as you're going along or, or what do you yeah, do? I usually do? So I'll, I'll usually plan, you know, the next several chapters, you know, since I have a broad outline, it's like, okay, these are, these are the next scenes I want to write. And so I'll have, you know, a couple of sentences um, at least maybe a couple paragraphs written about what the scene is going to be. And so I'll usually take a picture of each of those on my phone, because when, if I go hike five or 10 miles, you know, I might be gone all morning and uh, it's hard to remember all that. So when I finish a chapter, I'll pull up the phone and look at it and say, oh, OK, this is the next scene um, and this is what we're going to do with it. And then I can launch into it again. Um, but again, sometimes you get in the zone and I'll dictate three or four chapters without bothering to look because I'm just in the flow and I know where it's going to go. As you're dictating, uh, you know, I know for myself and other authors, when they sit down to, to write on the computer, you know, it might take them a little while to warm up and, and get going in the flow. Is that the same with dictating? It can. You know, sometimes you start talking and you're not really feeling it and everything. But, 
um, it's kind of like uh, when you're uh, when you're sitting down at the computer to write. Sometimes you have that moment. You know, you're looking at this blank page or the end of what you wrote the day before, and it's like uh, I'm going to throw away the first two pages I write. Yeah, guaranteed. But the process of starting to write gets you in the zone, and then you can see what you need to do. So when you dictate it's similar, you know, you'll be sitting there walking like, uh, what am I going to say? <laughs> but you got to talk, you know, once you start talking again, that draws you into the story, into the zone where, you know, it makes sense. So when you, da- when you download it and have it transcribed, you just select that opening and delete it and move on. But if you don't start, you never get anywhere. Right. Um, so, you, yeah, sometimes it can be a little tricky, especially when you're first starting out, either typing or dictating to just throw something out there and just allow yourself to say, yeah, that's just my warm up and I'm going to delete it. And that's OK, because that gets me to where I need to go to where the good stuff is hiding. Right. I know even musicians, you know, when they get to the studio, they're just they're just playing around like, it, they, you know, until you know, something just, you know, two notes like click and they, they go and they like, okay, what can I do here? And they, they move on. Like a lot of times it's 10, 15 minutes before they can even, you know, start producing something. And that, and, uh, and I know that for me, as I'm writing, that's the same experience that I've had too. Like sometimes it, it takes a while. It takes, you know, you gotta warm up to it a little bit. Um, you've mentioned, you know, David Farland, Kevin J. Anderson. Um, did you take courses from them? How have you, uh, gotten better as a writer yeah great question um you know it's funny i think uh, a lot of writers are smarter than i am because they reach out to the writing community sooner and i think these days it's easier to do that when i than when i first started you know i would kind of put the kids to bed the family go to bed and my writing time was like from 11 p.m to between 1 and 3 a.m depending on how long i could stay up you know and i still had to get up at 6 30 and go to work but, you know, I just it's just me kind of hiding in my closet, typing away. Um, and it was a very kind of lonely process. And you get better by practice, but you also get better by, you know, networking and learning from other people. And uh, for me, that started with, uh, you know, getting connected with uh, writing the Writing Excuses podcast from Brandon Sanderson and his team. Um, and I think they're the ones who connected me over to David Farland. And I took his class um back like back in 2010 i think and that was a uh definitely a milestone in my writing career and that started me getting connected with other writers um and also in 2010 i uh i think it was 2010 i went to the first superstars of writing seminar which is a, a big writing seminar that's now held in colorado springs every february put on by Kevin J. Anderson and his wife, Rebecca Mesta, and several other New York Times bestselling authors, you know, all about the business of writing. And, uh, and I go every year. And uh, it's a wonderful networking opportunity and uh, learning opportunity. And now I'm connected with, you know, the 20 books to 50K group. And they're amazing. And just, you know, so many people able to kind of connect with some things that I'm not good at, like marketing. I'm a terrible marketer. Um, and I've been working for the last year or two to try to figure that out. And it's a very slow grind for me because I'm a horrible marketer. You know, if I can get in front of you and talk with you, you'll buy one of my books because, you know, we can connect. But just getting online and doing ads or doing other things has been painful for me. Um, so we're, we're still figuring it out. But, uh, you know, some of these people are like, oh, yeah, I came in and, and did this and this and this. And I got, you know, 500 million followers and stuff. It was like, wow, you want to come work for me? <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like, yeah, I charge $10 million. And it's like, yeah, I don't want that. Sorry. Um, so luckily, they, they share a lot of that knowledge. And so I'm, you know, just working through it, writing the books and putting out great books. Uh, I kind of have that down. Marketing is something I'm still struggling with but little by little yeah and you know it's always uh, a challenge to get better and you know for those people who are wanting to become an author and and looking at the price of the you know superstars uh writers of the future or you know looking at a course by um mark dawson or somebody like that mm. you know th- that can be daunting like i remember in 2010 the first one coming out and i begged my wife to to let me go 
Um, but we just couldn't afford it. But sure, I didn't, I didn't sure. plan this, but I have right here. Um, David Farland, you know, he was very generous with his time. He actually did two different interviews with me, um, one in 2009 and one uh, a couple years ago. Um, for those that are listening, if you want to listen to that, it's episode seven of, the, of this podcast. But um, David Farland has great resources that he's put yeah. out, and so has uh, Kevin J. Anderson. Yes. Know, so if you can't afford those things, find things that are within your means in order to, to still get that information. Right. And I'd add two things to that. Uh, Superstars is amazing and I highly recommend it. It's, you know, it's definitely got a price tag to it. But uh, every year um, they grant several scholarship seats to people uh, who just apply for the scholarship, different anthologies uh, almost every year. And all of the proceeds from the anthologies go to funding scholarship seats. I think last year there was like 10 seats. You know, I've been in like two or three of those those uh, anthologies. Um, and even though they're only open to alumni to submit stories to, you know, there's a lot of really good writers. And uh, I'm really pleased that I've gotten into some of them. And uh, the proceeds, like I said, go to scholarship seats. And the 20 books to 50K group, there's a lot of free information there. And they also do a uh, an annual conference, usually in November. I went last year and it was awesome. Um, but they post most of the content from their conference after the fact on YouTube. Yeah. So you can get on YouTube and look up all of these really professional grade, uh, you know, training sessions for free on YouTube. It's incredible. And, uh, you know, that content's worth hundreds of dollars. Yeah. And it's a great conference. I went last year as well. And I was fortunate enough, if you if you pay attention, sometimes people cancel but want to still pay for somebody who mm-hmm. wants to go. And I was one of those. I, you know, I talked to um, uh, Craig, I think. I think, yeah, it was Craig. And he was able to use somebody else that wanted somebody to go that would learn. To, oh, yeah. And I was able to, to go take, it, take advantage for that. So if you are looking to to do something like that uh pay attention to the the 20 books to 50k uh facebook page and and they'll announce something like that so and you're right it is a great con uh content it's a great convention and um it's a way for you if you can't go to to watch on youtube because everything is there and you know and and that's what i did i couldn't go to everything they have so many classes that i had to go home and 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 watch it's on my it's on my list. There's several several of those sessions that I still have to get back to and listen to, um, you know, because you know that's great content and uh, it's still totally valid today. You know? Right now, you said you weren't good at marketing, but if you talk to people, you can usually get somebody to to buy your books. How has conventions helped you in your um, your book selling, your marketing? Oh, I love going to conventions. You know, I love meeting people and talking with people. And I go to quite a few, you know, I like going to Comic-Cons and uh, I just went to Emerald City Comic-Con uh, what was it, a week or so ago and had a great time. Um, it was, uh, I went in December last year to Emerald City where they had their last one. And uh, it was still weird, you know, it was still COVID and, and people were acting weird still. So it wasn't great, but this time we went and it was much better. You know, the feel was good and people were energetic. We sold a lot of books connected with a lot of new fans and uh just had a blast i'm also going to rose city comic-con and salt lake fan x here in september and uh, i've got booths in both of them and in both of them i'm on panels and doing presentations on writing and uh you know just getting involved in ways to to both share what i know and meet people and sell books and i think they're great um comic-con and some of these like Rose City and Salt Lake I've been going to long enough that, you know, I have repeat fans coming back. We're like, oh, I bought your book or several of your books last year. And, you know, what else have you got? Or just stop in to say hi. Um, and that's a blast. Um, but, you know, Comic-Cons aren't cheap. So uh, ways that help is, uh, you know, getting involved in on the panel side of things helps because if you're giving panels or participating on panels or presentations, you know, sometimes they'll give you a discounted rate on your booth. Um, another thing I found that helps is sharing a booth space. Like if you're going to get a 10 by 10 booth, um, you know, for a thousand bucks, you can get a corner one for 1200 and split it with another author. And then it's only $600 each, you know, or whatever. Um, so there's ways to, uh, to kind of share the costs 
and uh, and get them down that way. And uh, another thing to keep in mind are some of the smaller book events. Like here locally, you know, we go to the Christmas bazaars at two of the high schools every Christmas. And uh, we've been doing that enough years and I have enough content. You know, now, you know, people know me because I'm local. And uh, last Christmas, we sold more at the local little Christmas bazaars than I sold at Emerald City Comic Con. So some of those small events where the upfront fees are very, you know, are very low, you can actually turn around and it's far easier to make um, a return on your time than going to one of these enormous conventions where you're just a tiny, you know, pebble in a huge pond um, and you have to front up tons of money. You know, it can be harder to get a positive return there, even though I think they're useful for networking and getting your name out and, you know, kind of being seen as a professional in the field. So all of those things are still the benefit, even if the actual book sales aren't enough necessarily to make it a resounding success. But, uh, you know, don't overlook the little, uh, the little art fairs and Christmas bazaars and stuff, because people come wanting to buy books and uh, it's a great way to, to connect with people. That's some great advice. You know, not only the look for the smaller fairs that might not cost as much, but go into a big convention and look for creative ways to mitigate the cost, either sharing a booth or mm-hmm. being on a panel yeah. to, to help that out. Um, at, when you're at a convention, what are some things that you've noticed that have helped you sell more books? Great question. Um, I think being outgoing, you know, I've seen people, you know, set up their set up their display and just kind of sit there and wait for people to come. You know, they just kind of sit there and hide and wait for someone to kind of knock and say, hey, hey, what are you doing over here? Um, I find that's less effective generally than, you know, standing up, you know, looking out, making eye contact with people, smiling, you know, being engaging, um, talking with people about their costumes and stuff. Everyone loves to hear, oh, I love your shirt or I love your costume. What did you do to make that cosplay? You know, and a lot of times that doesn't result in a sale, but that's fine because otherwise you would have been sitting back doing nothing. And yet instead you just spent a connection. Maybe if they come back the next day, they'll be in a mood to buy a book and be like, oh yeah, that author was really cool. I'm going to go talk with him and see what he's doing. And that's fine, you know? So I have a funny story. So this book that I, that I got from you, um, I met you uh, at FanX 2019, so almost three years ago, okay? And it was the, that exact same thing. Um, you know, you go to a convention and it is jam-packed with a whole bunch of booths. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you get face blind with people like you just see people well as a as a goer you get kind of booth blind like you just see so many things that you you just kind of forget but um i think your wife pitched me on the book and i was with my son and uh, you know i I usually don't buy anything on the first couple days it's usually the the third day that i that i purchase stuff because i want to look see everything and I, I'd asked my son what he wanted because this, this book you wrote, you know, dedicated to him and it was his book that he wanted. And he was like, I want to go back to that booth. Um, and, and he said the set in stone booth. And so we, I couldn't remember the author. So like we had to walk around for a little bit, but it was that um, your wife had, had mentioned something to my son. I think he was dressed up. I don't remember as what, but, um, and so we talked a little bit and I'm, and if somebody like reaches out and says, Hey, I like your shirt. I like your, your costume or your, your son's cute or whatever. Um, you know, usually I'll stop and be like, Hey, what's your book about? Like, tell me, tell me a little bit about it. And I don't think I talked to you at that time, but it was just your wife. And I think your, one of your kids was there. And so that, that made a memory and an imprint on, on him. So yeah, that's great advice. Like, even if it's not selling a book right then, like sometimes people come sure. back. Right. And people will sense if you're reaching out to them just to make the sale, which turns people off because you're being fake. You know, I love to interact with people. I find it invigorating um, and it's just fun, you know, and if I can have a, a brief interaction with someone and they leave my booth with a smile, whether or not they bought a book, that was a good moment. Right. Right. And they'll remember that guy was cool. And you know, sometimes that's that's all you're going to get, but it's better than just staring at someone and saying, hey, buy my book. No. You know, then, you know, everyone's grumpy and nothing happened. But, you know, so I, I like to joke with people 
And I'm surprised sometimes people are like, great, I want to buy your book. I, like, well, I didn't even pitch, pitch my book. I was just talking. He's like, well, sell me your book. It's like, okay, but you better let me sign it. Um, you know, and we just have fun with it. And, uh, you know, that personal connection makes a huge, huge difference. Um, the other thing I would say is look at how people do their displays, because just how you set up your display, the physical setup, uh, can have a big impact on whether or not your booth seems inviting and interesting. You know, for example, sometimes you'll see, uh, you know, authors will put up their books and, they, you know, they'll stack them all up so that, uh, you know, they'll stack them up so that, you know, all you see is a stack of white, you know, as you're walking by. That's not interesting, you know. So, you know, you want to stack it up so that, you know, they jump out at people and, and it's interesting. And, and you can have a fun time with how you stack your book and just making that wall there that, you know, one is intimidating and two is not interesting. So it's good to, as you're walking around, you know, uh, walk around and look at what other people are doing with their book, their booths. And every time I go, I learn something new. Um, you know, at Emerald City, we started doing posters for the first time because I have all this artwork from all these covers and maps from the books and everything. And we started making posters out of them and hanging them up. And uh, people found that very interesting, you know, and I used to say, OK, if you buy, you know, multiple books, we'll give you, a, you know, a certain amount off. But if you say, look, buy a couple of my books, I'll throw in one of these posters. People get all excited. They might be a map person. They see a cool map. They're like, whoa, that's awesome. Like, well, you could buy that by itself. That's fine. Or if you want to buy a book, that's great. If you want to buy a couple books, I'll throw in a poster. And uh, that worked really well at Emerald City because people got excited by the artwork. Um, and that was a trick I learned from a newer author who actually ended up sharing my booth with this year. He's only got a couple books out, but he's got some great ideas. And our personalities mesh really well. And I was like, I like what you're doing with your artwork. I want to try that. And I did. And it was uh, it was great. I had a great time with it. No, it's funny. Like little tricks and tips like that can can really help when you're sharing a booth with somebody. Um, and, you know, that that author, um, he actually interviewed with me, too. Um, and yeah, Brian, yeah, Brian, Brian Asher. So if you go back a couple episodes, a great book. he, he yeah. does. And. Yeah, that was one thing that surprised me too. I met him last year at Fan X, and that's what that's what he was doing. He was he was you know if you bought so many you know, hit both of his books, you know, gave out some art, and that's that's one more thing that you can do. Some people are map people, like you said, and you have fantastic maps in your books. I was looking at them. Um, I love maps, <laughs> but me too. Little tips and tricks like this can can help. Now, going back to when I met you in 2019, uh, it was September 2019. You know, six months later. Mm -hmm everything was shut down. What did you do to continue to sell your books for during the pandemic? Yeah, I, uh, that's when I started really focusing on some of the online marketing, like Amazon ads and some things like that. I spent a lot of time and a lot of money. You know, you hear some people like, oh yeah, Amazon ads just totally went crazy. I think that happens less often these days because more and more people are jumping on Amazon ads. So the prices per click are going up and up because there's so much competition. So it's harder to see a positive return. Um, and I spent a lot of effort through COVID doing that. And I did generally keep my books near the top of their lists. But even though my read through rate is really good, I found that uh, by the time I see a profit out of it, you know, I was making just enough to pay the ads, uh, which is not a great way to do it. Um, it still kept them visible, which was great. And, you know, the volume was more than it probably would have been. But for me, anyway, it wasn't as successful as I had hoped. And now I'm looking at other things. You know, that's what you do. You try something different. Because once you have a book out there, you know, it's a property that lasts forever. So if it's not working, try something different. You can try a different cover. I've tried that a couple of times. You can try different marketing ideas, you know, try to target different audiences. You could edit or tweak it if you need to. Um, there's so many things you can do. The latest for me, I'm getting into TikTok, which uh, again is something I'm doing little videos and stuff has never been my strong suit. But I know quite a few authors who have found, uh, you know, huge new audiences through their TikTok videos. It's like, wow, who knew? Um, so I guess some pointers from them and some pointers from folks on 20 books to fit like 10 or 12 TikToks out now. 
you know, each of them have gotten like two or 300 views so far. So nothing great, but I'm in, I'm finding, I'm enjoying the process of experimenting with this new tool and trying to see if I can make it work. So, and if that doesn't work, we'll try the next thing and eventually, you know, connect with that readership that uh, is out there, you know, in a bigger way, you know, I'm, I have enough people who have read my books that I know they're, they're solid and people like them and the feedback's been great. Now it's mostly a marketing question for me and uh, trying to get the next one out. You know, I've got my next big project I'm working on and, you know, that's the best marketing you can do is get a new book out. So um, I'm working on that too. I think that's great advice for people who are trying to, to break in. Uh, you know, they put one book out and a lot of times they put their heart and soul into it. And if it fails sure. uh, or it doesn't, you know, succeed what they want, they give up. Like what you just said, like put the next book out there because that's the best marketing tool you have. Sure. You know, now I get 15 books out there. So there's quite a bit for people to look at and, uh, and it's, you know, it's fun. So I did pour my heart and soul in every one of those books I wrote. Um, and now I'm doing it with the next one. So for me, I've discovered that, uh, you know, humor is kind of something I do a lot. I do big epic stories, but I also do humor pretty well on uh, action pretty well. So I'm, my next story is a uh, humorous epic fantasy, kind of ratcheting up the humor side of things a little bit. And uh, the title is Bacon Master of the Apocalypse. Oh, nice. And uh, I'm, getting, I'm getting great response just from the title, <laughs> uh, which is good. I think, I think we nailed the title. And, uh, you know, it's set in a world where most of the magic uh, is based on the food pyramid. Oh, really? That, you know, muffin mages with exploding cakes and you've got, you know, confectioners with, you know, addicting sugars and evil cheese wizards with their nasty cheeses and, you know, milk mages who heal people with cream and stuff. And it's just just the whole setup is hilarious, um, even though, you know, the story, you know, they take it all very seriously, you know, and, <laughs> but just, you know, imagine someone like, oh, no, I have an injury, rub some cream on it. You know, it's just. It's just funny. It has a lot of potential to go. Yeah, it has a ton of potential. And I'm going to be doing a Kickstarter uh, in the next couple of months to, to try to really kick it off. And, you know, maybe that one will be, uh, you know, generate enough enthusiasm up front to uh, kind of get everything else to a wider audience. Maybe. Maybe. If not, we'll do something else. Yeah. Um, well, this, this brought me to another question. When you're come up with a new story do you how, what do you start with characters with a magic system like how do you generate new ideas it depends on the story the magic system and then we said okay well where are we going to set it uh did you guys read set in stone yet yes um so you know it's set in a town called alistair where they mine this precious white granite but they don't know why right so when my kids were like let's do let's do stones i said okay where are we going to set it? Well, we got to set it in a quarry. So boom, Alistair, you know, that started great. He said, who's good, who is our main character? Well, he's got to live in Alistair. And then we started kind of coming up with that. And then what kind of nation, you know, you know, and started working the setting and the politics and, you know, the magic. And it just kind of morphed from there. With the face takers, I started with this cool dream with this one crazy character who could, you know, remove souls. I was like, okay, what the heck are we going to do with that? Um, and you know, through so the brainstorming and stuff, we kind of started uh, refining the magic system. And uh, you know, then I realized, wait, I need another character. So that's when Sarah kind of stepped out of the darkness. She's the main character in the series. I was like, well, what's her story? So we started figuring that out. With Bacon Master, um, my son and I, I have a, you know, like most people have this file with all of the crazy ideas that I like to pursue sometimes. And that one, I was thinking, well, what am I going to write next? And that idea caught my mind. It's like, okay, a story where magic comes from food. Okay, let's check that out. So we started developing, again, the magic system in this case. And then uh, the main character, who's a bacon master, uh, started coming to life. His name is Wimple Dilskin. And uh, <laughs> he's a super boss warrior uh, who can channel the power of bacon to be super amazing. But... He has this critical flaw where he faints at the sight of blood. Oh, wow. This was kind of a problem. And uh, he ends up, you know, 
on this team that are all kind of almost heroes, but they have to become heroes. So, you know, some of the themes in the book are going to be really fun. It's like, you know, how do you become a hero? How do you step up and deal with difficult things when you're not prepared to do it? Kind of classic theme. Um, and we do it in a funny way, you know, with all this crazy food magic and, you know, there's coffee wizards and there's <laughs> just all kinds of stuff. It's a blast. So do you have a release date for that yet? I mean, you said you were trying to do a Kickstarter. Do you have a a goal date? It'll probably be early next year. Next week, I'm supposed to send my first draft to my editor, Joshua, to go through it. And then it usually takes me a couple of months to do edits. And we're working on the cover. I'm going to have a cover reveal, you know, in time for the Kickstarter. So I'd hope to start the Kickstarter in time for the Comic-Cons this month, but I'm not sure. It's probably going to be October when we do it. So I'll have some announcements soon. So we'll do the Kickstarter, you know, as I'm doing my edits so that by the time it's done, I should be able to get the book out, you know, in a pretty short amount of time instead of people waiting, you know, six or eight months like we have to sometimes. Audiobook done. I'm starting to talk with audiobook producers and, you know, see if we can find the right voice for that. And we're getting character sketches done for the main characters. And um, I think it's going to be uh, trying to put it all together so we can release it all hopefully early next year with uh, a lot of fanfare. Perfect. Uh, Frank, thank you so much for getting on with me today. Go ahead and tell people how they can get a hold of you. Sure. You can reach me on my webpage, which is frankmorin.org. That's M-O-R-I-N. Um, all my books are there. You can order signed copies of the eBooks or the hardcovers or the paperbacks from me there. And I'll have the audio books for three of my books are in audio. We'll have them up there soon. Um, or you can find the books online everywhere. Amazon, um, for the Petrolist, that's the main place for those. The, the face takers are everywhere. Um, and of course the audio is out there wide as well. So, uh, you search for author Frank Moore and you can find me all over. And then, of course, Facebook Facebook, and Instagram and TikTok now. Perfect. Thank you so much for getting on with me. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.